Ron? Well, I think this episode is going to be interesting for a lot of people. Kathy Harrod has been a leader of the pro-family movement here in Arizona for 20-plus years. Um, and this was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, she, um, she has a reputation of being everything that she's not. Um, she stands up for what she believes in, whether you agree with that or not. Um, I, I, I met her maybe three, four years ago, and I didn't, I didn't realize that she was so sweet and, and, and nice and, and, and gracious, and yet she has this uh, reputation of being this dragon lady. And it's not that, I don't even think that's, that's right. It's that the Center for Arizona Policy actually is very effective, and they get a lot done. They get a lot done. And they probably get more done legislatively than any other group in the in the state, and have been for, you know, as long as she's been a part of it. Right. So it's it, it's really impressive. Yeah. So, listen and learn, <laughs> and and easy on the hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good one. Yeah. Hey, so welcome to another edition of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Light Beer Man, Chris Clements, next to uh, Sean Noble, the king, prince of dark money. And I'm, I'm guessing, Kathy, you're probably like, wow, I can't believe he's embracing that. Because <laughs> it's something that, you know, has been seen as a pejorative term for so long. And finally, I was like, you know what, I'm never going to change it. They're just going to call it dark money. So what? It's, you know the kind of speech I believe in. Not that it's dark. It's just anonymous. It's called free. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's called free. That's exactly it. So today we've got Kathy Herod from Center for Arizona Policy with us. Kathy and I have known each other for a long time. I was going to try to figure out the years, but it was 1994. I yeah, think. 94. Yeah. Um, and she was a key uh, and important part of the coalition of grassroots and leaders that helped get John Shattuck elected to the U.S. House. And your first, primer. your first campaign. My first campaign. Yeah. So, and we've been through a lot of those <laughs> yeah. together since then. Um, but f- before we get into policy or you know that kind of stuff, tell tell us a little, you've got a very interesting backstory, and and I'd love for our audience to know a little bit more about that because I'm guessing a lot of people don't. People can be surprised sometimes, but yes, my background is more liberal feminism, that I um, was raised in Texas for the most part. I came out to Arizona. I was a twice a year kid. My dad lived here, but in Texas, my grandfather was city council member and school board member, and so I grew up going to meetings and helping his campaigns in our little town, to put it that way, but um, hit the University of Texas campus and got involved in a lot of liberal political endeavors, and I remember being disappointed that I'd missed the protest of the 60s, so I was thrilled when the university president was, you know, we wanted to get rid of the current university president, so I got to be in a protest, So, um, but worked on a lot of political campaigns, worked in Washington, D.C., um, interned and then spent a year in D.C. and so thought that, you know, more like the social justice, I would say, on the liberal side of things and um, kind of went to law school by default. Um, thought that, you know, it's kind of what all good political junkies did. I mean, I you know, always read the newspaper, always, you know, I mean, I 
love the pure politics of it. In in some ways, I still I'm still that political junkie as far as just following politics for politics' sake. Um, went to law school, entered law school as a liberal fem- feminist, and left law school as a married conservative woman, um, or at least on my way to being a conservative woman. So not usually what happens in a more liberal law school at a major law school, but that that was yeah that was my story. That's fascinating. Um, what I mean was there a turning point, or was it a, just a yeah, gra- was there a gradual point? Well, it was it was largely, um, I would say. I mean, I had some difficult family circumstances. Um, I had a, the grandmother who'd raised me died my um, first year of law school. I'd start dating my now husband, and um, my dear stepmother, who has been married to my dad now for fifty seven or fifty eight years. Um, I was very involved in my church and loved my church, but she would just ask me, what do they say about Jesus? And I couldn't answer the question because I didn't know the Bible and I wasn't in a church that was really teaching Bible. So I didn't know what she meant by, you know, what do they say about Jesus? And so it was that kind of quest that, okay, I've got to figure this question out. Um, And so, you know, I started going to a Bible study at a pastor's home that was very influential on me. And so left my church and was kind of like, okay, God, whatever you have for me. And so then it was kind of like, okay, I'd had this political background. I had a law degree, you know, and this was in the early 80s. And it was kind of like, okay, well, what do I do? And now I'm supposed to be this conservative Christian woman. And that didn't really fit me, you know, as far as, you know, I'm more like, okay, why should I cook a home-cooked meal when Costco's right down the street? I mean, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, so I, you know, wasn't, you know, traditional in some ways. And so just through a process, I would say that, um, you know, God led me back into that being involved in the political world and in the policy world, that that was my calling and what I was supposed to be involved in. Um, Conservative women were getting more active and the need for a woman's voice out there. And so, you know, it was a process. And when we first moved out here, I, you know, I registered as an independent because, you know, I was still, I'm not so sure about all this political stuff, you know, kind of thing is which party I might be or that kind of thing. So, you know, it was a process, but then, you know, when, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of my drive has been because I have two children and being concerned about you know what's going on and how policy and politics affects my kids and so you know so a lot of it you know women have and mothers have a lot to offer yeah that's great there's a uh, I, one of my favorite memories uh, working with Kathy is uh, John Shattig was the member was a member of the budget committee in his first couple terms of Congress and I was his budget associate was what they called the staffer did the budget committee and i can't remember what the hearing was um, it was the budget committee chaired by john Kasich. right but on the, ba- did, on the balanced budget oh, balanced budget of course okay. she remembers yeah of course she does That's why she's here and i'm <laughs> <on the side. laughs> but um her daughter laura was with her and at that time laura was first grade six first grade, years six old. years old and Kasich. Uh, sees her and invites her to come up and sit on, on the at behind the, at the dais. As right I said, there. my daughter's with me today. Of course, the whole thing was kind of a joke because I shouldn't say this, but you know, talking about why the government should have a budget balanced budget, you know, kind of in like let's just say I've never been a good budget person, you know, kind of thing <laughs> with with Senate personal policy. Yes, yes, but the home, you know, you don't spend more than what you have. But anyway, but so I mentioned my daughter, and then the next thing we know, Kasich's like, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. Yeah, and so he brings her up, and uh, and she sits next to him for the rest of the hearing. <laughs> and they bring out hot chocolate for her. They bring out white pieces of paper and markers. And so she's drawing the budget charts that she sees up on the walls. And then 
Then they frame it and give it to Congressman Shattuck. And it was just, you know. Yeah, hung in his office for the for remainder <laughs> of his time in, in Congress. So yeah. it was very funny. Yes. Um, what, so you've been the, the head of Center for Arizona Policy now for a number of years. Since um, 2006. 2006, okay. Oh, that's right. That's when Len Munsell ran for governor. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been the biggest surprise Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, biggest surprise. I'm not... Uh, well, I think if you want to look at it idealistically, that you would like to be able to go in and talk issues on the merits, and of course, you're not able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think as we see what's going on now, um, I don't know if it's a surprise, but the biggest frustration in some ways is the lack of truth, and that the left especially... Um, most most recently, they will just throw out there anything that they want. So I think the biggest surprise, you know, at times is, you know, politics. I mean, obviously that how, you know, when people aren't doing the right thing or who they're listening to and some of those things. So sometimes it's disappointment in people, um, ones that you think are going to be a stronger character and that they will fold and the compromise. Um, the current House Majority Leader said, you know, told us earlier this year, how much do you compromise until you're compromised? And so that is, you know, certainly a disappointment. I mean, and a, a surprise at times when someone you don't think is going to compromise does compromise. Right. As I've said this before on the podcast that, that if you put your faith in a politician, you're going to be disappointed. Um, just it's going to happen. Yeah. I, but there's but there's a lot of people who don't believe in, that faith and politics have anything to do with one another. That people of faith should just stay out of politics. And yet you you came to faith in a very strong way and decided that that must be the path. That must be something I need to, to do. Can you just touch on a little bit more of that, that transformation and why why people of faith have every responsibility to stand up, you know, for the teachings of Jesus and for for what's right? Well, I think in, in the political sphere. I think at times it's the tone and and some of the those who represent uh, or who present themselves as Christian that don't act like Christians and don't you know represent that. So I think, but as far as like for me, you know, the God's word says that you're to go into all the world. It doesn't say go into all the world except the political world. Um, we're to be salt and light. What does salt and light mean? Salt, you know, keeps meat from rotting. You know that we're to be the salt that preserves the the society. And I would say with that that. You know, every issue that, that we address in the policy world is backed up by sound social science data. So I may look at the life issue that I believe that human life begins at conception, and I believe that is that a religious belief, a biblical belief of mine? Yes. But it's also pretty well documented by social science data that that's the beginning of life. And so, you know, we don't always have to, you know, it's not like talking scripture in the political world necessarily, but it's, you know, it's still advocating for these values. And so I think that those who are, who call themselves Christians and who are believers that, you know, what is God calling you into? What is the marketplace where you call to, to serve? And for some of us, that's the policy world. And that that's, you know, that's really what happened to me is that, you know, actually I was with a, another friend and, uh, and she was talking about the ministry that she was involved in and, you know, our, our 
youngest children were in first grade, and she said what she was doing was what God made her to do after being a wife and mother. And I've said that was kind of like a light bulb time for me, that I thought, yes, what God made me to do is I'm a wife and mother, I'm indispensable to my kids and my husband, but after that, that you know, he had gifted me in this arena, and that's what, where I was supposed to be, and that's where I was to serve. What uh, you, you mentioned truth being lacking uh, in politics, and unfortunately, it's both sides. I mean, this fiction about a stolen election continues to just baffle me. Um, and, you know, I, especially all the, the consternation about what's going on in Maricopa County with this audit. Um, the, the simple fact is that if, so Biden wins Maricopa County by 20,000 votes and Adrian Fontes Democrat county recorder loses by 4,000 votes. So if he stole enough for Biden to win, why didn't he steal it for himself? I mean, and no one really has a good answer for that. Um, so it, it does disappoint me that, you know, you know, I, I spent a lot of time blaming or saying that leftists were the only ones that lied, but clearly conservatives can lie as well. That's unfortunate. Um, what are the, what are the most positive things that you've seen um, as you've, carried on this this effort with Center for Arizona Policy? Uh, what comes to mind right away is those politicians who start out being pro-choice on abortion, and then they look at it. I mean, I can think of one former politician who was seeing the ultrasound picture of his daughter that made him, oh, wait a minute, that is a life. Or, you know, I think, think of another former um, state senator who um, Planned Parenthood went after pretty hard for supporting something like Planned parental consent for abortion. And so seeing, you know, seeing an elected official actually look at the merits of an issue and decide that they were pro-life and stick with that position, you know, throughout their political career. And so I think that that's been one of the most rewarding because it's so seldom, it's so divided on so many issues. And so for somebody to actually look at the merits of the issue and to kind of consider them and then make a change like that to go from pro-choice on abortion to pro-life, that's probably been the, um, the thing that's been the most positive because that's, and we see, certainly we see that, I believe, throughout the, the culture and throughout the country that people's minds and hearts have been changed on abortion, and that's one reason the abortion rate's gone down is because you can't deny any longer that it's some form of, that it is a human being, that life has begun, and that certainly, you know, it's like one of the former pro-life leaders used to say, you know, what woman ever gave birth to a dog or a carrot, you know, kind of thing that this is a baby and women who are pregnant call it a baby. I mean, that's what, that's what you're looking at. And so, so that's probably been the most positive is to see that. What, what, what do you see as you look into the future? It seems like culturally there's just a a crazy amount of craziness. (laughs) Um, a lot but, of vitriol. Yeah, obviously the, the, there's huge division. There's the cancel culture. There's you know one of the goals we have is to be canceled. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not really. But um, it, what you know the 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 battles about uh, faith and uh, you know commitment to life have definitely gone the right direction, as you pointed out. Nationally, numbers show that there are more people that are pro-life than pro-choice. That's changed over the years. Um, But I feel like the culture, there's there's a lot of heaviness that we're facing. I mean, with transgender issues, with 
uh, critical race theory, with you know, all of all of those things that that become kind of harbingers for you know what. And, and I should say that's very active, like in the Twitter world, but it doesn't seem like it's as much in the real world. But that all kind of seeps in. What do you see as the challenges that we face as a society over the next couple of decades? I think largely whether the First Amendment is still going to mean what the First Amendment is intended to mean. And so when you look at first um, religious freedom and that the free exercise clause means that you're able to freely exercise your beliefs and the movement, I think, is stronger than many realize to put people of faith in their own silos and where you are, like if you're participating in commerce, if you're what the wedding vendor type of cases, that if you want to follow your faith and how you're running your business, and you don't want to participate, you don't want to use your expressive acti- you know, your expressive um, talents, you, your free speech talents, your follow your religious beliefs, and so the the move to try to force you to either you do, uh, either you bake the wedding cake for um, two men or two women, or you don't, or you don't ha- you don't have that business. So I think that 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 concerns me along with the whole battle over parents' rights, mm. and do and we've seen this for a long time coming. But do parents really know what's best for their children, or does the government know better? Does the the school down the road know better what's best for your children? So I think the need for for parents and individuals to have courage and to be willing to speak up and defend their rights and to be out there looking for things. But I think freedom, you know, in a nutshell, it's freedom. And what's freedom going to mean? And even when you talk about the First Amendment, when you hear the phrase, well, it's the right to worship. No, it's not the right to worship. That When they talk about what's freedom to worship, that's within the four walls of your church or within the four walls of your home. No, it's the right to freely exercise your religious beliefs in all sectors of society. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, yeah, I think the assault on the First Amendment from all the different sides of the First Amendment are really, really frightening. You know, it goes back to H.R. 1. We've talked about that before. Yeah, well, I mean, the it seems like we, you know, we went into this pandemic, the lockdowns and the school closures and everything. And now as we're coming out of it and, and kids are going back to school, and it seems like what, what what they're going back to is is more vicious and more almost more totalitarian. I mean, if you just read what parents are facing, um, there's a big um, big video going or being circulating about about what's going on in Loudoun County, Virginia, right now with critical race theory and 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 parents are just outraged of what their 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 children are being taught, what they're being forced to read, um, which is pretty much pornographic for the most part. How do we, how do we stand against that in, in, the, in the face of, of continued government control and, and um, almost omnipotence on our lives the last year? I think, it, it's, um, I think it's a two-prong response. Um, the, you know, one is elections matter, um, that we've got to be electing school board members who will... Um, at least respect parental rights or respect what needs to be taught in the schools. So I think part of that is, you know, what happens in elections, school choice matters, educational freedom, that we make sure that private schools and home schools are free of government regulation, 
the minute you start to regulate homeschools or private schools, they're on their way to becoming government schools. So parents have to have an alternative for where they would place their children in education. Um, so I think part of it is political. The other part is that parents have got to have the courage to speak up to go into the school and say, we're not going to do this. That, you know, for example, Arizona law gives you the right to withdraw your child from any classroom activity that is, uh, you know, is against your moral or beliefs, morals or beliefs. And so parents have got to be willing to go in and say, no, my child's not going to be in that class. You know, the example of sex education in the schools, it requires opt-in parental consent. You know, so you've got to engage. You've got to be going to those school board meetings, you know. And it's not just the, the you know, enforcing like your parental rights and overseeing the education of your children, but it's also the responsibility. So are you volunteering in the classroom? Are you participating in what's going on in your school district? If you, and really that cuts across any, of, you know, whether you've got your child in a private school or a district or charter school, you know, don't think that if you've got your child in a private school that you're safe and you don't have to worry about a lot of things because you do. Yeah, I think it's you point out something that's really important, and that is the, the involvement of parents when they can be. I mean, it, obviously, there's circumstances where it's very difficult, um, but it, it is critically important that that as parents we're involved in the education of our kids. Um, I, I have one small example um, when my second son or my first son but second child uh, went into kindergarten um, it was it was the the ad just they had just started all day k um, and and I noticed at Christmas break um, I sat down with, to read with him and realized his reading had regressed from when he started school I was like this is so weird and what it what what had happened was he wasn't getting the reading skills that he had when he was at home because my wife at the time that her routine was put the baby to bed, read with him, you know, in the morning. And so I went to the school uh, and said, you know, we'd like to take him, you know, a half day. Um, you, you know, you have him in the morning, we'll take him in the afternoon so that we can work on his reading skills. And they said, you know, you, you can't do that. Like, what do you mean I can't do that? It's like, well, we only have all day options. And I I thought, that's crazy. And so I called the principal, I called the superintendent's office, got assistant superintendent, called me back. And I said, I, you know, I'm just wondering what options you have for, um, for a half day for kindergarten. And <laughs> this is a direct quote. What person would be so out of their minds as to not put their child in an all-day K. And I was like, the person you're talking to on the phone, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Because um, my when, child is actually regressing right. with, with your so all-day. I got frustrated enough that I decided, you know what, that I'd never done anything like this because I was working for a congressman at the time, but I was like, I need to get a bill passed. And uh, uh, Mark Anderson at the time carried the legislation and went through committee, the only person who gave me any bit of a hard time and tried to scold me for being an idiot was um, Harry Mitchell, who was in the state senate at that point. Um, and it passed. And so not that he was able to, you know, benefit from that, but, you know, gave at least it was a small little piece of giving some parents a little bit more control. But it was just astounding to me that they, they didn't have that option. 
Yeah, and that's where parents, you've, I mean, yes, with so many families, you've got both parents are working, and so it's hard. Um, certainly it's challenging, but you've got to be checking what's going on and checking what's in the backpack. And, you know, if they say, oh, we're not going to show you the syllabus or whatever, no, you have a, you know, state law also gives you a right to review any materials that are being used in the school. And so to know your rights, but also, you know, the tone and how you approach and all that stuff matters. But that, um, but I think, I think that that's what I think parents are waking up and they're concerned. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned sex education. I know that that's been kind of a hot potato at the state legislature and the ve- and the governor vetoed your bill. And then uh, there's been reports that you all are working with him on what might be next. You want to just kind of educate us about that saga <laughs> and sure, what, what sure, you're trying to, sure. how you're trying to empower parents <laughs> on this issue. Sure. And I will say, never say die. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and right. we are, we are nothing if not tenacious. So the well, and, th- and that's a, just a, a point I wanted to make. Like when you look at when you go to your website and you look at all the pieces of legislation that you've passed over the last several decades, it's unbelievable. It's pretty astounding. There's, I don't think there's any other center right conservative leaning organization in the state that is more effective than Center for Arizona Policy. Well, thank you. God's been it's faithful. Just not. God's yeah. been faithful, and you know the you know the opposition likes to track like I'm in control, and I'm the I'm the master. Well, you're the dragon lady, right? All that kind of <laughs> stuff, and you know, I usually say I wish I had the power that the other side thinks I do because it'd be a lot different. But anyway, but um, the sex ed bill has been an interesting walk because the whole goal of it was to have transparency and accountability to ensure that parents before sex education was adopted by a district that the parents had a 60 day um, period in which they could review the materials that there would be two public hearings that there would be you know before the sex education curriculum is presented in the school classroom that the parents would be notified two weeks ahead of time and that they had to opt their child in i mean opt-in is currently the law but it also would allow if there's sexuality in classes other than sex education that you have to have opt-in parental consent because we see sexuality can cross a lot of different you know, courses in ways. You know, the example I had a few years ago, an AP English class where a novel that was fairly graphic and, and filthy was assigned in an AP English class. So, you know, that that's a way that sexuality could be in another class other than sex education. So we started this bill out with how this was, it doesn't dictate curriculum, that it would clarify that opt-in was across the board and, you know, have, have these accountability provisions in it. So it got all the way through the legislature. Not one Republican requested an amendment or had any, you know, had any problems with it. The left was all, you know, up in arms about it. And the governor vetoed it. So the governor's veto was a surprise. I will say that. Uh, and, the re, you know, one of the reasons the governor vetoed it was because it, it did not, well, one provision of the bill was that no sex education in the public schools before fifth grade. So K through four, you would not have sex education. Young children, vulnerable, they don't need sex education. And when you, the opposite of this is something called comprehensive sex education that is K through 12. And most parents aren't that thrilled with K through four sex education. But the concern was, was that it would prevent from the governor's office, was that it would prohibit abuse prevention awareness. So the good touch, bad touch type of things that they might be doing in the lower grades. So after the veto, and the governor at the same time he vetoed, he issued an executive order with all the transparency and accountability requirements and directing the State Board of Education to do so. Well, it was you know still late in the session, but lawmakers were like, well, let's bring it back. And so, um, you know, kind of negotiated, worked with the governor's office to draft a new bill 
that adds in that it does not prohibit um, child sexual assault awareness, abuse prevention. You know, abuse prevention is not sex education. Right. I mean, and that, you know, that kind of got lost in the shuffle. And also to codify what was in the governor's executive order. So the provisions in the bill that were in the executive order are now back in another bill. Um, because, you know, obviously an executive order has a purpose, but it's not the same as a duly enacted law. Exactly. And so we wanted to get a duly enacted law. We don't know who's going to be governor in the future, who's going to be in the legislature. With a stroke of pen, that executive order could be rescinded. So that um, has passed uh, at this airing that, that has passed the first committee hurdle. And it still has in no sex ed before fifth grade and the opt-in consent and the accountability provisions. So we deleted some things that, that might be um, a problem, um, but otherwise it's, you know, it's a very good bill. And this is where this is another example of parents needing to engage, that it doesn't dictate curriculum. So those who come in in the opposition and they're trying to say things that just aren't true, but it's where, okay, parents, here's what the parameters are. Here's how you have access to what's going on you have to get in there and review the materials and make your decision. And then parents, you have to have the courage to say, no, I'm not opting my child in. And this is another example of how the left looks at it. It was like, oh my gosh, if we have opt-in, which you're like, okay, man, opt-in's already the law for sex education. And they're like, they're acting like it's not, but um, we're gonna lose some kids. You know, some kids aren't gonna get this education or whatever. And I'm like, well, this, you know, parents want to oversee this. And so, that, you know, so anyway, so we're very hopeful that we believe that we'll get it through the legislature and get a signature this time. Well, I think that one of the, one thing that strikes me as really important is that you, you, like you said, it doesn't dictate curriculum. That's really left up to the schools, the school district, but the parents need to have input on that that's that's where what you're doing empowers them because left unchecked some school districts are going to be you know off the reservation and uh and and yet the left will say that you're trying to dictate what you're going to teach in the classroom when it's exactly the opposite they're the ones who want to dictate without any interference i mean what they don't want is interference from parents and i think that that's just a super important part that parents just need to know and you know they could have the ability to adjust the curriculum to be okay with their child being in that class it doesn't automatically mean i'm not going to opt my kid in it's i'm going to try to make this uh, work for what my core values are and what well, you know, a sex education curriculum for one district might not be the appropriate sex education curriculum for another district in another part of the state. So it also allows, you know, it is a local control issue. And, you know, sure, we'd like to maintain a lot of things in the classroom. But, you know, but it's also, let's leave it to local control and with the parents participating. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because, and, and probably something that the other side doesn't really want to deal with, you know, in terms of curriculum. They they. I think what you're seeing right now is that they they want one size fits all for for everyone, everything. Everyone's going to get the same. You see that in um, a number of different districts across the country where they're trying to implement. Well, California just announced some math standards where everyone needs to abide by this social justice sort of training for math. In 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 every school district in the in the state, it just doesn't make any sense. And on, on this issue, which is so much more a parent child interactive issue where the community values in a certain part of Phoenix doesn't mess well with, I would say, the community values in like Sholo. Right. 
right. and, and well, what and what needs to be taught, or or what what parents are gonna are are gonna sign up on. Well, and there's something called the gingerbread, like a gingerbread man, or it's also sometimes called the gender unicorn that is used in some Arizona public schools. And it basically is one of those things that gender is fluid and that you choose whether you're male or female. And it, it you know, it's something that most parents, especially in the lower grades, would be shocked to have in their child's classroom and not something that they would want to be going along with. And so that's, you know, an example of where that's, you know, and that's kind of bringing in sexuality in a different way in classrooms that parents you know, need to be aware of. Yeah, the, um, the parental rights issue is one that, when it comes to the transgender issue, um, you know, the stories about counselors and doctors who are, you know, pushing to have hormones, you know, injected into these kids at like five or six years old. I mean, and with, Ed, you know, there's, there is, there has been a push for parents not to have a say in that. I yeah. just find that astounding. You can't, you know, you, you have to have a note from your parents to take an aspirin at school. And I, I don't yeah. understand this. It's just, <laughs> this is when my mind starts to go. Aspirin, how about a Tums? I, I had to sign all that the other day. Well, yeah. and one of the stories from California a while back was, you know, in the first kindergarten or first grade class, and there was a gender reveal. And so I never remember if it was a boy becoming a girl, but whatever. And so the little girl goes home, another classmate goes home to mommy. Um, mommy, am I going to be a boy? You know, like five or six years old. And most parents aren't really that interested in walking their child through issues like that yeah. at that age. Uh, no, I'm not. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> so what What do you, I mean, it begs an interesting question because I know, I know a couple families who have had to deal with this issue with, with their kids. And so how do we as Jesus followers show grace and understanding to families who, who are dealing with this with their, with their children and trying to navigate this? You know, um, with with their kids questioning their gender, questioning who they are, questioning having these really severe emotional issues at a very early age, and and we all know that later stages that might change again. And so, as as Jesus followers, how do we how do we both, you know, assert <laughs> basic biology, but at the same time, you know, have sh- show grace, understanding, and and love. Great question. It's very difficult, very challenging. Uh, certainly, there are, you know, gender dysphoria is real for you know some children. I think that parents have, you can't discount it, you can't ignore it. That I think as parents that you need to get counseling and you need to get counseling from someone that you trust. I mean, if you are a Jesus follower, it better be someone who is also a Jesus follower and who understands biblical principles and who would be able to um, work, walk you through that and to um, you know, th- seek counseling to understand it, um, to read some books. Um, and it, you know, there's some good books out there. Um, you know, some of them are more policy focused, but also but to understand and, you know, where your child is at and how you navigate through those waters. Um, I think professional counseling of the right kind is critical. Uh, and that I think that I, I think that most parents are not equipped to begin to handle it or understand it. Yeah. And I do think that it's become popular, um, especially among a lot of girls. Um, you know that it's um, in the teenage years 
and I think it's like kind of what Sean was saying a little bit earlier. I mean, the idea that that you would be giving, um, well, they call it gender-conforming surgery or gender reassigning or puberty blockers um, to someone that's a minor. Um, that you know, and they do change their minds. I mean, I, you know, you know, another story. You know, the girl at 12 years old tells mom, I think I want to be a boy. And this mom wrote a story about it and said she was left of left. And so, you know, they go through a two year period of looking into all the science, talking to people, all that kind of stuff. And at 14, the daughter says, I'm okay being a girl. And so that's where, you know, that's the danger. And I think we're headed toward, we're going to have a number of individuals in their 20s and 30s that are scarred for life. You know, to me, it's not unlike those. You know, the suicide rate is really, yeah, really high. Right, it's right. over 70%. Well, and that's where, and so, so even when someone transitions, right. it doesn't solve the under, what the underlying problem is. And so that, that's where I think you have to, obviously, it's serious, and you've got to take it carefully. You know, for some, it's a lark, um, and it's just what's popular in some mm-hmm. ways, but that's where um, you, can't, you can't deny it. Or you, I, mean, I mean, you can't ignore it, I would say. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, and I, I, I think that's a really important component because, you know, the first of what I view as someone who follows Jesus is love, you know, love one another. Um, And we have to do that and we have to be understanding and we don't have to understand what they're going through, but we have to be understanding and that we're going to show support and, you know, and, and hope that they are doing what's best for them. Yeah. yeah. And likewise, it's in the not... in the political debate, you have to be very careful um, the tone, the words that you use. That as far as what are the policy reasons behind some of these laws. So you, you know, in Arizona, this hasn't happened, but in other states, to you know, no puberty blockers to a minor, or that even say you have to have parental consent before a minor goes through that. Or when you've seen custody cases where you know one parent wants to do the transition, the other parent doesn't. We've seen those in other states, or you know a parent losing custody because they won't go through the transitioning. And so, you know, there's some real policy issues out there and you've got to handle them carefully. Yeah. And, you know, and, and rhetoric matters in this big time. It, it does because people, it, it, it goes to the divisiveness, I think, of where we are as a society. They, they really, it's, um, you can't slip up anymore, you know, and say something stupid, I don't think. <laughs> At least some people can think it. But but then you have the you know, the end result of, of a lot of this and that is what's happening with the NCAA and 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 um, girls, men, biological males participating in girls' sports. Which which as a father of two girls and 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 one of which is a probably is gonna be a really good athlete, I, I just don't understand the logic in that. Well, and the best example is in Connecticut, where these two two girls who are track stars and were winning the meets, setting the records, and two boys decided they were going to be girls, and the next year they start cleaning up all the track yeah. um, records and winning the meets. And so, you know, there's a lawsuit over that. And after all the work done on Title IX to have equity in, in women's sports exactly. and all of that, that now we're throwing that out the window because, and this is where, okay, I'm sorry, you cannot deny that there are biological differences between males and females. And so whether it's lung capacity, whether it's bone density, whatever it might be that, you know, a boy is going to run faster than a girl is going to run, you know, most of the time. And that's where it, it's a, it's sad to see. I mean, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals 
what, about two weeks ago, heard uh, an appeal from an Idaho law that, you know, said no biological males in girls' sports. So we'll see what the Ninth Circuit does. We'll see what happens with the Connecticut case, because hopefully this will get, you know, resolved. But in Arizona, you, you do have biological males competing in girls' sports. It is happening in our state. Because at the end of the day, Caitlyn Jenner could still beat you in a 100-yard dash. Yeah, <laughs> she could. Um, I, and, and, and if, and just look at her. I always say, look at her hands or feet. <laughs> it's still, and her DNA is not changed. <laughs> but she, she has. Caitlin could still throw the javelin I mean, she, farther she's, than you. She's made. She made some noise. Uh, I mean, she's announced for governor. Yeah. In this recall, but um, she made some headlines against saying that it. yeah, she's against. No, I think that transition. I think that's, I think that's actually really helpful. Yes. I mean, we need those voices. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean that, that trans individuals can't compete in sports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where do we want to go next? I don't know. Do you got anything? <laughs> <laughs> anything on your mind, Kathy? You want to get off your mind? <laughs> we, well, might, we might get canceled just from that second well, one. I don't know. Well, you mentioned, you kind of inferred this a while ago, the whole lack of civil discourse. I mean, that's yeah. the other thing that is is the most troubling, that you can't, you can no longer have a legitimate debate and I cannot tell you how much, especially in the Arizona House, we see it repeatedly, where it's, it might be, I mean, it, it's personal insults, it's, uh, you know, forget talking about the the message or what the merits are, let's just shoot the messenger and see what we can do. And that doesn't benefit anyone. And But that's where all of us have our own duties to make sure that we're conducting ourselves in a civil manner and the rhetoric that we use, and, and we try to raise the level of civil discourse. Um, and certainly our last president um, did not help that. I'm not not saying that as a never-Trumper and as an anti-Trumper, but you know what we see people in public office doing in that regard matters and, and that we have to make sure how we're conducting ourselves. Yeah, he, he definitely changed the whole dynamic of, you know, how you conduct yourself as an elected official. And I think that that, you know, now we have politicians that, are trying to be more Trumpy, and and then obviously there's the that that leads to greater vitriol from the other side, and you know. Yeah, well, the good. political discourse, and we've talked about this on this on this podcast, has become who can be the loudest. Yeah, who yeah. can shout this shout somebody down the strongest and be the loudest. And we need to focus on the issues yeah. and where people are on the issues. I mean, to see what's happening in the U.S. House, uh, you know, as we speak is that now you know a a less conservative member of congress has replaced a more conservative member in house leadership and so when you just okay so one was criticizing trump the other wasn't criticizing trump so now you've had it flip-flop so now that what the third person in u.s house leadership is someone who is what a conservative maybe two-thirds of the time if that, if that not even that maybe half right yeah. and that you know that's where okay wait a minute let's get back to the issues and the policies and 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 standing up for what we believe in on the policy side do you um two questions one's is pure speculation on all of our parts but one do you think that trump will run again and two let's assume he doesn't how how do we how do we get out from under the the influence? I guess, if lack of I mean, he still controls so much because people are still, even though he's not the president anymore, still showing fealty to him rather than the policies or the issues. Well, 
it, the whole thing is frustrating because there's no question that the, the four years of the Trump administration were some of the strongest that we've ever had. I, you know, what he was the most pro-life president. Just you know, the bureaucracy matters. You know, the people that I know that were in the Federal Health and Human Services Department and what they were doing from rights of conscience on the life side. I mean, uh, civil rights. I mean, it was something we've never seen before. And so we're at a great loss now with things being, uh, you know, changed. And to say nothing of the federal judiciary and the remaking, literal remaking of the federal judiciary under Trump. You know, I don't think he'll run again, but that that may be me. But I think that those in the Republican Party need to wake up and acknowledge the Trump factor and acknowledge, you know, that I have seen more people wanting to be engaged in what's going on politically now than I have seen probably in, in quite some time, if not ever. And so somehow we've got to have someone who can bring together the different sides and, and stop this civil war, that in a sense, that's going on within those who are supposedly conservative. But I think we've got to come together and how, you know, who is the right person to run for president who can unite the people who are concerned, who are not you know, of the Biden ilk, you know, that type of thing, or the Kamala Harris ilk. And so how, how do we, you know, we've got to, we've got to marshal that in the right way and not turn people away because pe people are very concerned about what's going on in this country. And there's more ac activism than we've ever seen. And Trump deserves the um, credit for a lot of that. Um, and a lot of people getting more active. So now it's like, how do we, in a sense, groom that or train that into being effective not only for 2024, but what happens in Arizona next year in mm -hmm. 2022. Right. It's, it's so interesting because no one wants to really ask the, or really examine um, on either side, on the, on, the, on the D side or the R side, why does Trump exist? Why was he elected? I think only really one guy does it really well every night, and that's Tucker. Like he gets it as to why why these subsects of, of of voters voted for Trump? Why blue collar voters came over and voted for Trump? Why why um, more Hispanics than ever voted for Trump? And and to your, to your point, was it Trump? Some of it was, but it was also the way that he was able to communicate to those people about he understood what was going on with their lives and what what they needed, and. I think there's what's baffling to me is that if if you have an electorate where suburban moms left the, the Trump and, and and went to Biden, and now you have a federal government pushing on, on the, all these issues in suburbia, which will turn off suburban moms, whether it's critical race theory or all these other issues that we've talked about, and then you have all these the slew of issues on the border, which also got Trump elected, you have high taxes, more regulation coming down the pike, which also got Trump elected, you know, is it just seems to be an overreach. But at the same time, I'm wondering if anyone's really paying attention. At what point do people connect the dots, you yeah. know, in a sense, that how to see that, okay, this is what a conservative, you know, for the most part, conservative presidency looks like compared to what a far left pre presidency looks like and what do you want for your country and what does freedom mean to you? And yeah, and, and even like to look at the surpluses and of course Trump was part of that, but the debt and all, you know, all the craziness that, you know, that you know, how money's just been handed out uh, without whether there was even a need or not um, yeah. for some people that, I mean, that's kind of crazy. You know, the people that, you know, were working full time, never lost a paycheck and then they got a surplus check for each, that both, 
you know, if it's a married mom and a dad in each child, um, yeah. you know, those that's kind of amazing. You know, some of those things that are happening, but that's where I think, you know, people have got to start thinking, you know, hopefully what, what we see going on in our country, people connect the dots that these are issue driven, uh, that, you know, and that, you know, things are changing because of where people are on issues and, and wake up and, and decide next year is going to be interesting. You know, will the, will the Republicans take back the house and get a better margin in the Senate? You know, if that doesn't happen, then that shows that the country's not paying attention to what's going on on these issues or what the long-term effect is. And really, you know, what's the legacy going to be for children and grandchildren? Right. Yeah. There's a lot, lot facing us. No it seems that. like every election cycle is the most, the most important, important in our, most important lifetime. In our lifetime. And, and then you say, well, guess what? Yes, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been since the most important in our lifetime. Again. <laughs> well, I'm certain that we'll have you back again before the most important election of our lifetime, <laughs> which will be next year. <laughs> um, but thank you for taking the time. I well, mean, thank you. It's been fun. We love to hear people's stories. You've got a fascinating one and, and your insights on, on what faces and ails America. Well, and I think also one thing about your story is really interesting is that you took time to figure out the meaning of life. And that is, was Jesus who he said he was? Amen. And you, and you and you figure it out at an age where you could do something and go on and pursue pursue him in a really dramatic way. Amen. So um, thank you for being a great friend and thank you for just gracing us here with in our in our little podcast. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thanks. Good. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks.